Continuing once more with the chapter Understanding Dharma, and this is the talk called The Trapper's Snare. So we've been talking about investigating the body and skeletons and such like that go with us wherever we go, our constant companion. So the Buddha wanted us to look into this matter. We don't need to think about gaining anything in this life. Give up unwholesome ways and practice good while you're still living. Once you die, there's nothing you can do. The Buddha wanted us to see the urgency of the situation and hurry up and get to work. You still have eyes and ears that are functioning. Consciousness that has not yet departed from your body. So you can understand things. Throw it all away. If you throw it away while you're still living, it'll bring lightness. What does throwing away mean? Strive to give up, to look, to investigate. When the consciousness departs and leaves a corpse behind, what can you accomplish? They'll carry the body away to be cremated or buried, and that's the end of the story. We have our traditions for honouring and supposedly helping the dead, and we employ all sorts of idioms in our language to describe how we gain merits from such practices. People may put out rice cakes, saying that the dearly departed will benefit, then they sit there enjoying the cakes themselves. But where is the deceased at that time, and what benefit does he or she get? It's better to train yourselves. The Buddha did not praise the dead. He praised the opportunity of this human birth. It's important to practice while you're still alive. If there's wrong in you, give it up now. If there's something good, practice it now. These are your two friends, your refuge. In the present, this is your refuge, and throughout your future lives, it'll be your place of refuge. The various material possessions are only what they are. Isn't that so? Do you see how young people fight over these things now and how it leads them nowhere? We're old enough, so we should know to stop doing that, seek tranquility and relinquishment instead. We've done enough of the worldly business already. It's time to stop it now, isn't it? So one gets the feeling this is a Dhamma talk that Lumpur was giving to a on the observance day, um, or to uh, <coughs> visitors to the monastery who are more of an elderly variety. He was probably in his 60s when he gave this talk, and so would be relating to people of that kind of generation. Um, so to pick up a few points in these, um, this passage, the Buddha wanted us to look into this matter. We don't need to think about gaining anything in this life. So that's uh, very uh, contrary to most, uh, mostly what uh, people are aiming at in a worldly way, trying to, to get something, to, to be somebody, to make a name for yourself, to uh, uh, say to be, um, uh, to be a person of substance or a person of significance. That um, it doesn't mean to say that we uh, act in a, in a sort of lazy or uh, un, uh, unfocused way of life, but the uh, the idea of being somebody or gaining something or uh, being, a, being a person who's admired, um, that uh, 
is uh, is a, a very worldly attitude, I would suggest. Probably the kind of people who come and spend time in a Buddhist monastery like Amravati are not too worldly in this respect. But still, you know, we like to be admired, we like to, to be, um, say, respected. We look upon people that we admire and think, oh, I'd like to be remembered like that. And uh, and the sense of of it being a a, a a disaster if we're uh, if we're sort of forgotten or ignored or, or um, dismissed by others, and that um, that <clears throat> but it, from the Dhamma point of view, then it's good to reflect that um, yes, we do the best we can with our life, but really it doesn't make that much of a difference <laughs> in the larger scheme of things. Just another ripple on the on the sea just another wavelet just whoop, up, up it comes oh it's gone and then uh, no big thing I, I like to contemplate um graveyards going going into um uh, say little gadsden church great gadsden churchyard and reading the gravestones and you just have a, a, a usually just a, a birth date a, a name a birth date a death date and then perhaps a good wish like um uh uh, uh, we uh, this person lived uh, 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 and served in a good way, or that they were a beloved mother, or not much else. And I, I like to look at that. See, uh, there's a whole life story: just birth date, death date, name. You know, bye bye. <laughs> some of them are a bit more expansive. If you go to Little Gadsden Church, some of them are, it's quite the narrative about some of the uh, the people who lived in this area. Some with um, many many children or people of great sort of, uh, of repute but still that sense of um uh, i i like i like to look at the ordinary gravestones more <laughs> just the like, yeah that's it's it, that's all this life is it's just uh, like a, a wavelet on the ocean just a cloud forming and dissolving it's uh it's uh not a a um uh a thing to inflate or make much of and that's a a, a a kind of reflection to balance out the i want to be someone i want to be remembered i want to be loved i want to be admired um, and historically i think and, and culturally that sense of uh, of wanting to be remembered or that it being something terrible to be be forgotten is something so sort of handed down from our, our ancestors but i feel this dhammic perspective is um is uh, very very skillful in that sense of yeah i get so interested in my own life my story really it's just born this date died that date came and went okay <laughs> it was just a, a particular tree that grew up and then and then fell over just a particular uh, wave that rose up on the sea and then departed yeah, and no big thing and then the mind that says no 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 that's the a kind of a clear snapshot of self view right there the uh, the um the the uh, the mind that is quite quite comfortable with being completely lost to history yeah, i would say is a, a mind that's really in a in accord with dhamma it's my humble opinion well not very humble opinion <laughs> so throw it all away throw it away if you throw it away while you're still living it'll bring lightness um, well, in a sense, uh, even though Lumpur says throw it away, uh, part of the, the the theme of this whole talk and the, the Dhamma teachings is nothing is really possessable in the first place. That we can't really throw it away because we never really own it. <laughs> what we're letting go of is the illusion of ownership. And one of the qualities of Nibbana, uh, of the great peace of Nibbana, 
is uh, anadanang. It's a place of non-possession, non-ownership. So that's the the heart that doesn't try to own anything. Uh, it's a it's a uh, anadanang is the akinchanang um, uh, when the Buddha is describing Nibbana as the island, he says it's akinchanang anadanang, which means uh, a place of no thingness, uh, uh, a place of non-possession. So if you throw it away while you're still living, it'll bring lightness because you know it was never <laughs> it was never yours in the first place. So it makes it much like the heart is much lighter, not trying to own things that are unownable. Uh, then he says, strive to to give up, to look, to investigate. When the consciousness departs and leaves a corpse behind, what can you accomplish? So, um, basically, in in uh, it's out of the scope of our, of any measure of control of what, uh, where um, the mind might gravitate or what might happen after the death of the body. So this is the the place to focus. And as he make, and he makes a very good point that uh, <clears throat> the Buddha didn't praise the dead; he praised the opportunity of this human birth. And, and so th- there are references to um, being able to share merit or, or to the, the to dedicate the benefits of good conduct to others. Sometimes people say, "Oh, this sharing of merit happens sort of every day in the monasteries. This is just a, a custom. This is a superstition. There's no basis for that." There is, um, uh, in fact, basis for that. Uh, maybe not the water pouring, but the actual sort of conscious dedication of blessings for the benefit of other beings. Um, there's a sutta called Nanda's mother, Nanda Mata. Um, I can't remember where it is at the moment, but um, uh, where uh, Nanda Mata, who's a very dedicated disciple of the Buddha, is making some some offerings for the Sangha, and then there's in the dialogue, um, then she talks about dedicating the blessings for for um, beings who are not in this realm, and, and so it's talked about quite quite matter-of-factly by, between her and the Sangha as being something quite uh, ordinary and, and appropriate to, to be doing. So any questions, thoughts? Anybody who wants to make a name for themselves? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sorry, so that's a leading question. Yeah, so talking about you know, beings passing on and um, past lives and... I was wondering, have you met any monks or nuns who, or lay people who can remember past lives or know where beings go when they die? Have you, have you come across? Uh, I've come across people like that, yeah. 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 I mean, is that very helpful? Because I imagine if you can sort of see, you've had thousands and thousands of lives, maybe takes the, um, the heat out of this one. Really <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's why the the Council of Nicaea in the fifth century the, the christian church wrote out reincarnation rebirth from the christian doctrine Be- deliberately with the idea of uh, people people will be casual if they think they've got lots of lifetimes and so we should just remove any any mention of of previous lives or future lives and just do you've got one shot you better get it right so it was a deliberate choice by christian theologians in the fifth century to Excise. There's a couple of, I was mentioning a, a few weeks ago, there's a couple of places in the New Testament where it sneaks through and you still find it. That, that when uh, There's somebody who's born blind that, that Jesus uh, uh, gives the, uh, enables them to see. And then there's some comment that says, 
Uh, was it something that they, uh, but the, uh, because of uh, something of this life, or was it something from a, from a, from an earlier life that caused them to be born in this way? So that's there's a couple of things like that that just sort of snuck through. The editors missed, but um, uh, I've, certainly I've uh, I've come across people like that very accurate. Just to t- tell a story, if you're interested. So um, when I was a student in London, I was a kind of hippie, right? So long uh, bush of hair and rainbow-coloured clothes, and just general kind of hippie student beard, you know, the whole thing. And so uh, a friend of mine was uh, always interested in spiritual opportunities and different things going on in London. And so uh, he'd heard about this fellow who was giving talk from out of the Rudolf Steiner tradition, who was giving talks every week. And he said, this guy is amazing. He's incredible. He's fantastic. You've got to go and meet him. And it took me, it took him a few weeks to persuade the other people we're all living in a flat together in West Hampstead at that time. <clears throat> and it was all the way down in Fulham, which is uh, quite a bit of a journey away. So anyway, after a little while, I said, okay, I'll go along. So I went along to one of these evenings, and the person who was giving the talks was a man called Trevor Ravenscroft, who was, um, his teacher was a direct student of Rudolf Steiner. So it was a kind of grandson of Rudolf Steiner. Um, so... <clears throat> I went along to this talk, and it was, it was very interesting. He was a very good speaker. It was all about the kind of karmic history of Europe and who various different figures were in previous lifetimes and so on and so forth. So uh, at the end of the, the, the session, they were having a cup of tea and chatting, and then this friend of mine introduced me to Trevor. And, <clears throat> and so I'm just standing there chatting with him. After a couple of minutes, he stops and says, your life's been very connected with horses, hasn't it? And I said... How did you know that? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and you know, I did not look like I was out of the, the kind of hunting, the, you know, the horse riding sect. I was kind of literally in a rainbow colored jacket and, you know, and sort of a bush of hair and a beard and a hippie student. I did not look, look like a horse riding type. And um, so, uh, but anyway, it was enough to, but it was true. I grew up riding horses from when I was, I, I first rode when I was three and, and that always had the family always had horses and dogs around, so uh, um, there was no way he could have known that. Uh, the, my, the, the fellow who took me along didn't know I, I grew up riding horses. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, a, f- uh, a number of weeks later, I kept going along. I got my interest. So this fellow's obviously very tuned in. So then a few weeks later. Um, well, actually, a few months later, when I, I, I was more of a sort of regular there and got to know him and the family a bit better, and then we were having another casual conversation, and he said, uh, <coughs> he said um, that uh, the reason why I knew your life was associated with horses was because we were in Mongolia together a long, long time ago, <laughs> and we were uh, on horseback. It's that life in Mongolia is is, is uh, on horseback, so I recognised you. So I thought, okay, <laughs> if you say so. My riding style was never quite British Horse Society standard. Uh, I was never a very polished rider, but I was effective. Yeah, and I did like the mounted games, the Jim Carna, which the, the Carna of of Jim Carna comes from the Khans of of Mongolia, I believe. 
the uh, so I did enjoy those. So I thought, well, maybe so. I have no particular memory myself, but that was when I was about nineteen, eighteen, nineteen. So that was just the beginning. I mean, even long before monastic life. So. So that there's no not to me that's not explicable, other than that he had some kind of clear memory of uh, of that, and um, he uh, also just while I'm on the subject, <laughs> he was quite in, intuitive, not just about past life things, but um, about sort of reading people's characters, and uh, he he gave me very very helpful advice. He said uh, one, another of those sort of informal chats. He said, I don't know whether I should tell you this or not, but you're never going to find satisfaction anywhere except in spiritual life. It's, you know, that uh, when anything that you try in terms of worldly, uh, sort of worldly, worldly pursuits, it'll, it'll, never, it'll never satisfy you or fulfill you. The only place you'll find any kind of satisfaction in your life is in spiritual development. And he also said, uh, your destiny lies in northern India. So he was pretty. Uh, he was a uh, pretty, pretty good shot. That was three for three. You know. Anyway, yes. Um, sure. Was, uh, you were describing your reflections on the tombstones, the mm-hmm. gravestones. It reminded me of this um, conversation. You know, there's work going on right now for Lumpur Pasana's biography. Mm-hmm. And so Mike Adair, a supporter, and I approached Ajahn Sachito and asked, oh, would you be interested if a group started some work for a biography for you? He's like, no, 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 definitely not interested. But after a moment, he paused and said, you know, if, if I wrote something now, it would be called the autobiography of a Sankara. <laughs> great title and just for that title alone I feel like he needs to write something but that's a great title that yeah. is he, like, should, he should copyright that yeah. <laughs> ASAP but it, has that, it gave me that sense when you were talking about the tombstones it's like it's, that's all all of this is mm-hmm. yeah so uh, I think it's a um, it's good to, to change the perspective because it's uh, culturally and in, in, intuitively, there's a strong pull not to be forgotten, and somehow, and in, in in many societies, there's a kind of a folk belief that that your be your your being in in sort of eternity is sustained by people not forgetting you, and that uh, and so that uh, some you know, uh, uh, traditions they they pass on the memories of the family. So that people won't be forgotten, so that they'll be that's like their kind of nourishment in the the other world or the afterlife and so on. So that is a, it's a strong impulse, but uh, uh, for me, I, I find it's that thought of just just a, a birth date and a death date, and he came, he went. That was <laughs> that was it, and that's uh, that's all, that's as, as much as a, a as a sankara needs to be marked. It arose, it abided, it passed away. A one, and that uh, whatever effects, ha- whatever good effects have come from the life, they they've rippled out through the world anyway. So it doesn't have to be sort of you don't have to have a huge monument. Said he who's planning to build a stupa full of made over it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a balance between the memorials and and 
the psychological you can you can you can be sure Lumpur Chao didn't say please build me a big stupa for when I'm gone yeah but he wouldn't object to the fact that a big stupa was was made for him but uh, it's it's good to keep it in perspective in that way so to continue Even though you're living in a house, you should contemplate these things. You're not ordained, but let the mind be ordained, investigating the truth. Worldly accomplishments and possessions only go so far. They really do not lead to any ultimate kind of benefit. They exist within their limits. They will flow away, so let them flow. The Buddha wanted us to meditate and see. If we contemplate in this way, it'll be what the scriptures call preliminary training, the first step. It'll destroy the attachment to our own bodies. Destroy our bodies? What does this mean? Through seeing the impermanence, suffering, and lack of self there, we realize weariness and dispassion, and real faith will arise. Please contemplate this. The first result will be that with the arising of world weariness and dispassion, you will refrain from harmful actions. When you stop this, it is sila. If you don't understand these things, if you don't know what karma is and what is wrongdoing, if you do not know, sorry, if you do know, you will stop. Whatever is not good or, or beautiful, you will stop doing by the way of body and speech. That is morality. When you give up all wrongdoing, there is morality. So that uh, encouragement, you're not ordained, but let the mind be ordained. <laughs> so that uh, and again, a few days ago, we were talking about this, um, uh, that verse from the Dhammapada, verse 142 in the Dhammapada, where it starts off by saying, even if someone is uh, is sort of dressed up in a very fancy way, if they're gaily decked with you know with uh, fancy clothes and jewelry and and ornaments and such like, if their if their heart is uh, filled with faith, if they're if they're uh, practicing uh, wisdom and virtue, then uh, they are. A, they can be said to be a, a true samana, a true renunciant, a true uh, brahman, uh, brahmana, a true uh, brahmin, a, a true bhikkhu, a true uh, renunciate, uh, or a, a true uh, mendicant who sees the the danger in samsara. So that uh, the uh, this is the kind of encouragement that Lumpur would give. That yes, yeah, you know, we are monks up here, and you know, nuns over there, and you know, lay people down here, uh, but. You know, really, we're all just human beings, and we have these minds, these hearts, and these conventions are there to support this. But even if you uh, you haven't entered the monastery formally, that in terms of attitude and va- and values, in terms of priorities in, in your life, you can have that same kind of um, uh, gone forth attitude that that the, that the uh, the truth of the, the the Dhamma, the truth of say the the uh, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self nature of all the five khandas, that's what's that realization, that appreciation is guiding your life. Then, whether you've got trousers on or you're wearing robes, it, it's by the by. Worldly accomplishments and possessions only go so far, they really do not lead to any ultimate kind of benefit. They exist within their limits, they will flow away, so let them flow. The Buddha wanted us to meditate and see. So, yeah, well, again, worldly accomplishments, we can, 
uh, we can think of, uh, well, I really wanted to do something special. I really want to, to use my life in a great way. And as, you know, certainly we can do things and bring skillful things into the world, but we, we can't even necessarily take them with us in, in, our, in our present life. Just before I left the Bhayagiri Monastery in 2010, this, this couple came to visit, and the husband had um, very advanced Alzheimer's. And um, so he had been um, one of the uh, one of the inventors of the the uh, the Xerox copying machine. He'd been worked for for Xerox, Rank Xerox Corporation. And he'd be one of the people who who invented the the photocopier, the, the photo copying machine. Quite a kind of genius engineer, but he couldn't. Uh, he, uh, his his thinking faculties had completely eroded. So his his wife really had to look after him every moment of of the day, and so uh, they uh, had been interested in dhamma and practice meditation for for some time. But um, so she she they, she brought him up to a Bhayagiri to ask for some advice, and uh, it was it was interesting because she you know she would say oh he was a really you know well admired person he was a brilliant mind, um, and, but he can't even remember what he. That he he made this great invention, and he was that he is highly regarded. He doesn't know that he's much loved and he's famous. Uh, he'll go. He'll come with me into a shop, and he'll uh, he'll just get. Uh, if I leave him in the, the in the, the the next aisle over, he'll completely forget what what we're there for, or what his name is, or who I am, and that they said it, it's all just disappearing. And it was, it was very poignant uh, meeting them, but uh, someone. That uh, that you can't even necessarily take it with you in this life. <laughs> Those kind of accomplishments or sense of I'm, well, I invented the <laughs> the photocopier. The, I was a famous engineer uh, or such like, and that uh, it's uh, it's a value because photocopiers are useful <laughs> around the world. But to be carrying that around as a, an achievement that I have as a person, even in this lifetime, it can it can it can go. And uh, and you know those of us who've been around uh, uh, family members or people that we know with with uh, uh, eroding memory and mental faculties, then uh, it, you can see how how things disappear. People forget what uh, uh, what what value things are supposed to have, like like money. That uh, you know, <laughs> hold a holding a sort of five pound note. Like, what's this for? <laughs> You know, what, what are they talking about? And the things that are uh, seemingly automatic or natural for us to give value to, or, or whatever—the whole idea of of money—and and sometimes, and Lumpur Cha would make that that point, uh, and other other Dhamma teachers too. But uh, that yeah, you can spend your whole life uh, doing what you can to accumulate lots and lots of money. You can be incredibly rich, but before you die, you can forget what money is. Then how much have you got? <laughs> what was that all worth? And the the concept of money has just gone out the window. If you've got even if you've got millions or billions, billions of what? <laughs> What's a billion? Yeah. And that all those things that we that we assume have value and assume that are ownable and uh, and uh, substantial. Then this kind of contemplation reveals that um, you know these things are very ephemeral. Uh, another story that comes to mind again with um, <coughs> with 
a well-known person. Um, so, uh, many years ago, uh, I was uh, the school Beedales um, down near Chithurst. It was a, the first co-educational boarding school in in England, uh, and so they had quite a, uh, a um, uh, unusual kind of curriculum and, and set up. And uh, they invited, uh, they, they made an invitation if a, a monk could, could come and spend time at the school. And uh, so I, I went twice, and my job was to sit under a tree. I didn't go to any classes. Uh, and so they have a, an apple orchard is the center of the school. And when the school was founded, they had a third academic classes, a third um, arts and uh, and um, yeah, yeah, arts and music, and then a third was outdoor work. So they actually had their own farm with like you know cows and chickens and sheep, and the children leveled the playing field by with by shovels and spades and rakes and soles. Um, so it was a very unusual uh, school in the kind of alternative movements of the early twentieth century. And so my job was to sit under a tree and be available. So that's what I did every day: I'd sit under an apple an apple tree and. People wanted to come up and talk, and then they could. I didn't go to a single classroom for the whole, the whole week, you know, twice over. So during this time, one of the people who came and chatted with me was the chemistry teacher. And he told me this interesting story. He said that uh, he had um, uh, done uh, a PhD and had got, made some, some fairly groundbreaking discoveries in, uh, in, his, in his studies, um, but he'd also been interested to, to help in this alternative education. And so after he finished his doctorate, then he'd come to, to teach at Beedales, but he was being lobbied by various universities, so please come and, and study here, or could you do a program there? And, and so he was sort of getting all these, these uh, appeals on his time because his, his work was, he was kind of obviously a young, bright mind and was, had some groundbreaking territory that he was covering. And so he said... So for the last few years, I've been pulled between do I stay here at Beedales or do I get into this kind of prestigious research facilities with um, these kind of uh, very superior laboratories and, and these very kind of uh, highly qualified people to, to work with. Um, and I said, I've been, really, I've been really torn over the last few years where I want to sort of land and, uh, and sort of make my career. And he said, what happened was that I think the previous year he had had the opportunity to go and study with Linus Pauling, who was a very famous chemist, um, uh, chemistry professor, who had two Nobel Prizes, <laughs> not just one, two Nobel Prizes for chemistry. And so a very, very highly qualified um, uh, sort of expert in the field. And so getting the opportunity to be invited to work with Linus Pauling uh, and to um, to say uh, join up with that and, and be part of the studies and write papers together with these with this famous person and and other associated people, but he said what happened was that um, when he was there um, that the Linus Pauling secretary very tragically committed suicide, and she'd been with him for about twenty years, and. Uh, and so, uh, and here's, here's this, this great professor who's you know, in his 70s by that time, absolutely brilliant mind, two, two Nobel Prizes. And he said, uh, and uh, I, I, this is all secondhand information from this fellow, but he said, 
Linus Pauling had absolutely no way of handling it. He was completely um, broken apart. He had, for all that intelligence and, and all that kind of um, eminence, he was really thrown off, uh, completely thrown off balance. He had no place to to put that in himself, and uh, and they said it was really startling for him as a, a young person close to him. Like, wow, this he's absolutely brilliant. He's got all these qualifications and and all these glittering prizes. But he's got no refuge. He's got no spiritual grounding, and so he's really adrift, and he's just um, in a, a very sort of distraught and, and uh, distressed state. And so uh, he re- he said it was a real wake-up call for him that yeah, you know, the glittering prizes might be attractive and appealing, but what's more important is his human qualities and the, and the, the, the spiritual aspect of life that. Uh, that he felt was much much stronger in living and working at Beedales and being a kind of student, a student counselor, and uh, along with teaching chemistry, they have the teachers tend to have a very sort of close and uh, friendly relationship to the to the pupils as well. It's a very different kind of pupil teacher pupil dynamic than most schools. So it was a very powerful conversation, very uh, very meaningful, uh, and he so he said, "I'm." I'm, I decided to commit myself to Beedales and to to forget the the kind of uh, all that um, high flying research field um, and not not being critical of Linus Pauling but um, just the sense of wow you can do all of that work and have all these brilliant discoveries and be highly admired but yet at the end of your life then some uh, something like that that happens where you're completely uh, you're completely thrown off balance and you have no uh, uh, no grounding, so it was, it was a very potent object lesson for him. So um, probably not too many people here are rabidly achievement oriented or trying to <laughs> chase after the glittering prizes and and, and such like. But um, that uh, that kind of uh, story, I find that uh, in respect to worldly accomplishments, it's very helpful to to keep it in in uh, keep things in perspective. And I, I just as a, as a last note, I was very impressed by my my father, who within his small field <laughs> of judging dog shows, uh, he was a dog judge as a as a, a career and a, journal, a, a journalist in the uh, the dog breeding uh, world. He, he wrote for Dog World magazine for many years, and the pinnacle, of the, the kind of ne plus ultra, the pinnacle of of development or pinnacle of achievement in dog judging is to judge best in show at Crufts. Uh, so that's like arahantship for a dog judge. That's the kind of, you can't get beyond that. Crufts is the most prestigious dog show in the world, and judging best in show is like, you cannot go any higher. So he got invited to judge best in show when he was 80. Oh, just, just before he was 80. And um, <clears throat> so this is like a big, big deal for him, and uh, very, very important. He had to... Spent two years re- uh, researching all the different breeds of dogs because you can get any uh, any six. Just to go into a little bit of detail, best in show, you have the the winners of each of the six groups of types of dogs, like working dogs, toy dogs, ha- um, hounds, and such like, so terriers and such like. So um, he worked really hard to prepare himself for this, and then he made a good choice that year, pe- a choice that people approved of. It was a red setter. That people thought good choice, yeah. but anyway. So during that time, 
And so he was this, this kind of reached the pinnacle of, of his um, possibilities in his his own world. And uh, um, and one of my sisters made a, a very sort of complimentary remark and sort of full of admiration and praise. And he said, "Yeah, I'm a big fish, but it's a very small pond." I thought, "Good for you, Dad." Yeah, well, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, obviously that uh, the. Uh, Having a Buddhist monk for a son, <laughs> maybe having some kind of influence, but or maybe it's just his own intuitive wisdom. But uh, I was very impressed by that. I said, "Yeah, he's he's a, a big fish in that world. He was also known as the Pope of Bull Terriers. He was a, a world expert on bull terriers. But uh, yeah, it's a big fish, but it's a small pond. Uh, I've taken that with me. I thought, yeah, but, uh, I have to remember our, remember our ponds are probably a lot smaller than we." Then we uh, we recollect on a daily basis. So to continue, when you stop this, it is sila. And so, when with the use of the word sila, it doesn't just mean keeping the precepts. Um, uh, so the word sila both refers to the sort of the the rules of of do's and don'ts, but it also refers to the quality of virtue itself. So, when you uh, when you refrain from harmful actions, it's not just following the rule, but it's really that the heart of virtue, the, the heart that loves the good, that is really the the core of sila, and what's called the gunatama, the the quality of virtue itself. If you do know, you will stop. Whatever is not good or beautiful, you will stop doing by way of body and speech. That is morality. Then, having given up wrongdoing, the mind is composed and can attain samadhi. When the mind is composed in samadhi thus, wisdom will be born. When the Buddha began teaching, some disciples became enlightened in their seats just by hearing his words. Some attained the arahant stage, the end of the path, right there on that single occasion. So, when did they keep the precepts? When were they practicing meditation and developing samadhi? They realized weariness with samsara and dispassionate detachment, and they were able to stop. That condition is sila. Then with no wrongdoing in the heart, but only coolness and tranquility, there was samadhi. From this state of calm, the mind was able to contemplate things and know them as they are. Hearing dharma, contemplating dharma thus, pure morality and rest and the rest arose. And this was the path. In that moment it happened. Now, people like us have a lot of doubt and uncertainty. And we think, oh, they must have really had a lot of good karma behind them to do that. But it happens in the present also. It really can. If we listen and understand clearly, it can happen. The mind gives up. It lets go. If it can't let go right now, it can do so tomorrow or the day after. At another sitting in the near future. Not knowing clearly today, it will know tomorrow. Not realizing tomorrow, it'll realize the day after tomorrow. It must know if we really take an interest in the Dharma. So this is another uh, very helpful and impactful teaching and uh, referring to, the, in this instance, the, 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 uh, the Buddha's five companions, the Panchavagi, uh, the five um, of his old friends that he had uh, reconnected with in the deer park in Varanasi. 
And it was when he was giving the, the, the uh, Anathalakana Sutta, then they all became Arahants at that point. So uh, the, the, um, the message that Lumpur Chah is giving here is, so they're just listening to a Dhamma talk uh, at that point. So um, uh, where does Sila fit into that? Or where does practicing meditation develop into that? Develop, uh, how does that relate to that in uh, developing samadhi if they're listening to a, a dhamma talk and so forth and so he then explains that um, that that quality of weariness with sangsara and, and detachment um, that condition is sila that kind of uh, letting go of, of worldly thinking and uh, attachment uh, fascination with the sense world then the, when that's let go of, then the the na- the virtue of the heart, the natural quality of the virtue of the heart, is is established, and then, as he says, with no wrongdoing in the heart, only coolness and tranquility, there is samadhi. From this state of calm, the mind was able to contemplate things and know them as they are. There, there's a um, a teaching that is known as uh, liberation is a natural process which is uh, in the book of the tens in uh, the Anguttara Nikaya the numerical discourses sutra number number two in the book of the tens and it uh, it outlines it spells it out in more detail than Lumpur does here he says uh, the Buddha says for one who keeps the the moral precepts one who lives virtuously there's no need for them to think, may there be freedom from remorse, may freedom from remorse ir- arise, because for one who, who lives uh, virtuously, it's completely natural for there to be freedom from remorse. And then for one whose uh, who's heart is free of remorse, there's no need to think, uh, may I experience uh, uh, delight and, and, uh, and, uh, and ease, pamoja, because when, when one is free from remorse, then that delight naturally arises, pamoja naturally arises. One in whom pamoja arises, delight, there's naturally joy, piti, and then one who experiences joy is naturally sukha, contentment and ease and relaxation of the mind and the body naturally arise. And then he says, for one who has experiences sukha, there's no need for them to think, may samadhi arise, may concentration arise. He said it's completely natural when the heart is content and at ease that um, the mind inclines towards concentration one in whom samadhi is established there's no need for them to think may knowledge and vision of the way things are arise because it's completely natural uh, for knowledge and vision for insight to arise in one uh, where, uh, who is established in samadhi and then for one who is uh, in, in whom knowledge and vision of the way things are has arisen this insight has arisen there's no need for them to wish may I be dispassionate and detached because it's completely natural, it's in accordance with nature, that when there is insight arise, uh, arising, then the natural result of that is dispassion and detachment. And then finally, uh, for one in whom dispassion and detachment arise, there's no need for them to think, may there be, knowledge, uh, may there be the knowledge uh, and vision of true liberation, uh, because it's natural when the heart is detached and dispassionate, then the, the knowledge of of uh, liberation uh, uh, arises, manifests. So that's a a, um, uh, a very help, uh, helpful sequence, and also pointing out that the kind of relationship between sila, samadhi, and panya as a sort of natural uh, progressive uh, process, and also in terms of the um, the the practice, thinking oh sila is one thing, samadhi is another thing, 
uh, insight is another thing. It's like, well, they're, they're different in words, but they're all part of a, of a continuum, a, a natural process. They're all uh, related to each other. So rather than thinking of those as separate, independent uh, practices, then, uh, and, and this is how Lumpur Chow would often speak, that the, you know, it's not like Samatha is over here and Vipassana is over there as totally different uh, you know, unconnected things, and you just just con- just do concentration, and no vipassana, or just do vipassana, no concentration. He said, it "Doesn't really work that way. It's all it's all um, uh, attributes of the same mind." So that's uh, Anguttara Nikaya Sutta number uh, Sutta number two in the Book of the Tens. If you're interested to follow that up. So, any thoughts, questions, comments, on any of that? Yes. So then, ago I was wondering uh, that in nineteenth or eighteenth century, it seemed that uh, virtue had some more value for people. That nowadays you have some goals and uh, desires you need to achieve, and so on. But before, it seemed that you um, realized that you need to give up life sometimes if you're. Uh, family pride or something um, like mm-hmm. those higher value than your personal mm-hmm. things and wishes and desires and it seemed that before it was more part of the culture and it would put in perspective that uh, there is something bigger than you mm-hmm. your personal and now it seems that it's kind of uh, lost and it looks like if you think in this way that there is something uh, that you cannot break that there is a virtue and it puts limits to what you can even think about. Mm-hmm. That always uh, your little me who wants this and that, it always less than this uh, virtue. Mm-hmm. So it it's always less than. How, how do you mean? Mm-hmm. If if it's more important for you, mm-hmm. and straight away you feel more cool that it, it doesn't have such so much power if you put something higher than mm-hmm. personal. Absolutely, yeah. That's the, I would say, sorry, did you finish? Yeah. So I'd say that's the downside of the sort of secularization of, particularly in the West, um, the um, Friedrich Nietzsche saying, you know, God is dead. Surely you have heard that God is dead in Thus Spake, Also Sprach Zarathustra, and that uh, a kind of movement towards. Um, secular thinking and getting away from the influence of Christianity and religion generally in the Western world. And so uh, morality was very much associated with obeying the laws of the divine. God has told you do this, don't do that, like the Ten Commandments and such like. And so um, that, um, along with the, the loss of that sort of religious influence, I'm not saying that was necessarily a a good thing, but at least there's something out, something higher than just the individual. But also, uh, more and more in modern times, the kind of breakdown of family values and then what they call the cult of the individual. Individualism also rising up from the early 20th century. Personal excellence, me winning, uh, 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 and things like family... Um, uh, 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 fulfilling the values of the family, or wanting to to do well to, to uh, in uh, respect to to the family values, family traditions, and so on, 
that uh, all of that's got much, much more weak, and it's a lot more about gratification for the individual. I mean, it's a very sweeping statement, but that's one of the really negative aspects of the secularization and the, um, the kind of materialism that, uh, of since the uh, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, that's uh, quite, sort of, in a way, deliberately engineered in many, many countries. And so it's also a cause for a lot of depression <laughs> and uh, uh, the uh, uh, preponderance of uh, like depression, suicide, alcoholism, because uh, not, in a way, being uh, uh, fo- focused on the idea of I am, a, I am a separate individual is a depressing thing. And uh, and that uh, the um, the more that the mind is focuses on trying to find happiness for the ego, uh, then the more disappointing uh, life is. And so, um, it's, I, I think it's also one of the reasons why, from about the nineteen seventies, you got and or sixties and seventies, there was a big interest in spirituality from Asia, and and so why we're here, you know, <laughs> like all of us doing this. Uh, as mostly as Westerners, but from from all around the world, because it's like after about a hundred years of of that from the late nineteenth century of drift towards materialism, secularization, something says no, <laughs> it's not just one. We're not just isolated individuals. We're part of a uh, of a, a of an organic whole. We're part of something much bigger, um, and that there was this kind of spiritual revolution of various different kinds. Uh, uh, particularly in the 60s, 70s, and, uh, and since then, whereby that movement away from that, that kind of effects of materialism, the, the depressing um, and uh, the, uh, 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 the very um, unrewarding sort of materialistic values, I mean, the, the whole communist um, enterprise, of uh, you know that uh, even though it had some some high ideals to begin with, just the, the materialism and the kind of um, uh, the 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 loss of heart in just you know, in people of, of uh, the purpose of, of, of living and and what really has value in life is just uh, getting more and more remote, so that um, uh, that. The effect of, of self-centeredness and materialism is is a lot of depression, and it's, it's interesting how, in the countries where life is less of a struggle and you've got f- far more material security, like places like you know, Scandinavia or, or sort of New Zealand and very very secu- sort of socially secure countries, the degree of alcoholism and uh, and uh, drug use and and depression is, is extraordinarily high. Uh, it's, as I understand it, quite a, significantly higher than in countries where much more is much more of a struggle to survive. That if everything is provided and there's a very kind of watertight security system from cradle to grave, and everything is provided, um, but it's also with a a, um, a kind of materialistic value system. In life gets really, really boring and depressing. <laughs> it's just about me finding entertainment or me being comfortable, and it get, it's it doesn't nourish the heart at all. So that uh, the, the um, that uh, <coughs> the va- the the 
quality of virtue um, as some people have a respect for that because of of uh, seeing that oh well it's a natural part of, of spiritual <laughs> development or a natural part of of relating with each other if you do appreciate you're part of a large organic whole then then you want to live in a way that is respectful of the other beings that you share this life with um, one of the things you find in the in the Buddhist world in the West is that the kind of overhang from the sort of um, God has told you you shouldn't do you, you know thou shalt not do this thou shalt not do that because of the, the oppressive um, way that morality had been imparted uh, to in the culture that then it's taken as morality is therefore an, in, an inhibition on freedom it's stopping you from being able to do what you want to do and you you should be able to do and so um that's a that's a, a I would say a, 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 an area of confusion for many uh, Westerners. I think, obviously, I'm biased, but <laughs> in the uh, the the more traditional understanding of Buddha Dhamma, you find in in monasteries and uh, not just in the in the meditation scene, but where the it's not just samadhi and panya, but the sila samadhi and panya is focused on. Then you have much more of the whole picture where uh, in um, I think I lived in California for 15, 20 years, and so often talking about sila at all was like you could feel people tensing up, like don't tell me what to do. You should, you can, you're not going to put a blocker on my on my freedom. You know, it's a kind of particularly the Bay, you know, San Francisco Bay Area, sort of freedom central. Like, don't you dare inhibit my freedom to do whatever I want to do. So it's, you had to come up with some clever ways of talking about it, or effective ways so one of the the, the talks so i cause i picked that up very quickly when i the first couple of years i went to go and visit in the early 90s and uh, san francisco is a very hilly place there's about 40 hills in san francisco so if you ride a bicycle in san francisco you, you get very fit very quickly <laughs> so a lot of a lot of hills there and so uh trying to encourage the local buddhist population very kind of freewheeling you know don't uh, don't do anything to obstruct my my uh, my choices ajahn um so i use the the analogy of like that that sealer is like having brakes on your car like you uh, you know you have a car so you can go places and the and having gears and an accelerator and a steering wheel and all that is very good but you kind of do need brakes for going down the hills and making the corners, and if you're trying to drive in in, in San Francisco without without brakes, then you you know you'd really be in trouble very very quickly. So that was uh, how I tried to impart a a, um, a feeling that morality is not uh, an inhibition on your freedom; it's actually just skillfully relating to your actions and speech, so you can so you you can get where you want to go, <laughs> and you can help other people who. Uh, are also on the road to get where they want to go so it's like a re- establishing a, a respectful and beautiful relationship with other living beings and, you know uh, you know of every of every type and <clears throat> that um, uh, it's it, rather than a, an inhibition or a, a block on your freedom is actually facilitating your ability to act freely in the, in this life so not everybody was convinced. Predictably, <laughs> <laughs> but it can be even uh, freeing you in some way because if 
uh, to protect your life and your values and what you have is the highest and if you know that there is something more it means that you um, more at ease uh, with, with losing you know what you have that it's not so important anymore mm-hmm. so you have more freedom in, in what you do yeah exactly so that uh uh, and it's also that the the source of, of adaptability and the more materialistic we are and the more focused we are on on our personal opinions and preferences and desires that you know i can't be happy unless i get this kind of food or i can't be happy unless i i have this kind of view from my window or i can't be happy unless i've got this kind of person living next door and and so that um particularity is just causing dukkha all the time <laughs> But if you are, if you are, if all that is secondary to the fact of of being at peace or living harmoniously with others, okay. Well, if I get the kind of food, or I don't get the kind of food, that's all right. If I have this kind of view or that kind of view, that's all right. Or no view, that's all right. And so that um, you, the, your happiness isn't just dependent on those particular conditions, living conditions, uh, and that. Um, so you're not tied to f- to fulfilling particular desires or, or following particular impulses. That your happiness is not in the object; the happiness is in the subject. The simple way of uh, describing it that you that sense of there's something bigger than uh, than just my my life, my personal preferences, and my wishes. Um, then <coughs> that. Uh, that makes us far more adaptable, far more at ease in all circumstances. Any other questions, thoughts? We're nearly at seven o'clock. So, let's just leave it there for today. There's still a couple more pages in this chapter. So, yeah, let's just leave it there.